Hi, I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy. And I'm Ross. I am slowly, film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now. Welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century. Trip. Our exit today has us looking at our first sequel, and one that tries to maintain the shagadelic success of the original. This week's film is Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, written by Mike Myers and Michael McCullers, and directed by Jay Roach. Mike Myers returns as Austin Powers, the unfrozen, out-of-time super spy who must once again stop the supervillain Dr. Evil, also played by Myers. This time, Dr. Evil has created a time machine and gone back to 1969. His plan includes stealing Austin's mojo and holding the world ransom for $100 billion with a laser on the moon. It is up to Austin and his new partner, an American agent named Felicity Shagwell, played by Heather Graham, to stop him. But Austin finds his job tougher to do without his mojo. He also must battle henchmen, diabolical traps, and a clone of Dr. Evil known as Mini-Me. In the end, Austin is able to defeat Dr. Evil, save the girl, and realize that he has had his mojo all along. While Austin and Felicity go back to 1999 and enjoy themselves, Dr. Evil escapes, waiting to enact his revenge. Or appear in a third movie to follow. So Trip, did you find this movie groovy, or did this movie leave you cold as if you were frozen in ice? Ross... I feel like I just need to call an audible on this movie this week and move on because I saw the first Austin Powers once when it came out on DVD. I I watched this. I just don't get it. I don't get the kind of comedy of these movies. It is not for me. I understand that people love these movies. I don't find Dr. Evil and the bad Lorne Michaels imitation that it is very funny much at all. I don't really find Austin Powers that funny as a character. There are definitely some chuckles in this movie. There is some stuff we can talk about, but this movie and this type of humor I know is not for me. And so that's how I feel about about this movie. I know you have much more nostalgia for me. You mentioned last week, I think this was the first movie we're talking about. You would have seen in real time. So you were at the movie theater. I wasn't. What am I not getting here, Ross? I, I will tell you this, Triff, if, you, if it makes you feel any better. I know specifically of somebody who very much agrees with you. And that is my very lovely mother, who <laughs> to this day will remind me that she had to take me and my brother to go see this movie. And she did not like this. She, she was not a fan of Austin Powers. There are a whole lot of jokes in this movie that I could see a, uh, a mother not wanting to watch with their children. And <laughs> no, especially your, what were you? 10 at this ten. time? like 10, yeah. about 10. Um, a lot of dick jokes for a 10-year-old. Yes, um, but also a lot of poop and fart jokes. Yeah. This this movie, again, I don't think we can fully explain this if you didn't live through this. Austin Powers was huge. This movie created so many catchphrases and so many things that just permeated through culture. Ross, I had... I had never seen this movie, and I think I knew every punchline to this movie. That there were about 50 times this movie where I was like, oh, yep, 
Oh, yep. Because I knew every joke. I knew every character. There were very few surprises in here because they had all been told to me. Absolutely. So to, to put this into perspective, the first movie, which came out two years earlier, had a budget of about $16.5 million. It makes 67 to $68 million. Mm-hmm. Not bad. That's a hit. Good for them. They get double the budget about – they get $33 million budget for this one. This movie makes worldwide $313.7 million. That is this movie baffling. Is a, it is a massive hit. It is. And that first one did fine in the theaters. It was a – that movie owes everything to Blockbuster because yes. that movie came out right as people started getting DVD players. And it was – everybody owned it. Everybody rented it. Everybody watched it on repeat it had a madonna song when madonna mm-hmm. having a madonna song was a very big deal oh yeah trip i had this soundtrack i had it on cd all right this was huge and of course 10 year old me loved this movie because this movie is geared perfectly for a 12 mm-hmm. to 14 year old boy it's crude jokes it's you know very silly it is very silly yeah. and it is a perfect thing for again i was 10 at the time i thought this was hilarious i had not watched this movie probably in full since i was 10 but it is it was that big of a hit so i know that this movie where austin powers didn't seem to make uh sense to you you are a a person who loved saturday night live Mm -hmm. mike myers at this time outside of even austin powers yeah huge what were your feelings on mike myers at this time i liked mike myers i mean i should say if that early 90s snl was my era my guy was dana carvey Dana Carvey could do no wrong. I loved everything that he did. I think I watched every episode, like both of them, of the Dana Carvey show in real time. Like, I just, I loved him to death. And so I had a lot of Mike Myers love, I think, because of his connection to Dana Carvey. I really liked the Wayne's World movies when I was 10 or 11, definitely. But this sort of Mike Myers was not my thing i don't think yeah this is much more mike myers front and center than something even like wayne's world which i agree with you by the way yeah i love wayne's world Mm -hmm. i think wayne's world is still very funny i still quote that movie with one of my friends um mike myers at this point in his career is one of the biggest comedy stars he is huge and you had wayne's world one and two have already come out he did so i married an axe murderer which is a movie that i enjoy i think it's very Mm -hmm. silly but it's very fun and you know this was now you know putting him out to being a massive box office star and you put him with heather graham who at this point in her career is Mm -hmm. also now getting into this phase of her being a really kind of bigger up in you know bigger star she'd already done twin peaks the year before she had done lost in space which was a big budget movie in 97 she's in boogie nights and is a huge part of boogie nights and scream 2 she's has a fun things in it she's working with greg araki like this is i don't think i had realized that heather graham was in this which might have been what got me in 1999 to go see this movie i was a huge heather graham fan I owned a Lost in Space movie poster. I have never seen the movie, 
but I did have the poster. Heather Graham was on there. Again, maybe not a fan of Heather Graham for, for all the right reasons at that time. But uh, And I think she's really good in this. I, I will say that the Heather Graham, Mike Myers stuff, to me, was the best stuff in the movie. I don't think we talk about how good comedically Heather Graham is. I think she has kind of a one-note comedic thing. You mentioned Bowfinger. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. She's playing a very similar character in these two movies, Bowfinger and Austin Powers, and it's Heather Graham's kind of comedy thing. But she's very good in, in this movie, and I think I liked those scenes more than anything in Dr. Evil's lair or a lot of the other stuff that's going around this movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lost in Space uh, was absolutely... I I read the novelization, Trip. I was a kid who read the novelization, all right? I I loved, if I remember correctly, I remember having a Lost in Space book with that. I, I wasn't, was but I was probably the only teenager who knew the old Lost in Space TV show very well. So <laughs> that, you know. that may be, that may be. I loved, I loved Lost in Space for for many years. But yeah, I mean, Heather Graham is exactly the kind of person you want in this movie. She is mm-hmm. a really good foil for Austin Powers and for Mike Myers. Mm-hmm. Very similarly to how good Elizabeth Hurley is actually in the first one. She plays off him very well. I will say watching this again, I poor Elizabeth Hurley. They kill her off so quickly in this movie. The way that they did Elizabeth Hurley's character is, is bad. Like it's, it was very clear that they did not have a plan for a sequel. And then when they did either, she was not available and she didn't Mm -hmm. want to do it. Or they decided we need to have kind of like a bond thing where it's a different woman. So we need to find some way to get her out. It is also very interesting that that kind of element from the first movie, which was such a big part of the first movie, was all the fembots, you know, the fembots mm-hmm. and all that stuff, really kind of is gone in this movie. But I feel like their lesson from the first one was we just need more Mike Myers. We need more Mike Myers characters. We need to up Dr. Evil into almost a co-star role versus a smaller part of the movie. Um, and that's what I think rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I don't think they took the right lessons from the first one in order to expand it for the sequel. I think what they also, the first one did very interestingly is deal with the idea of a person coming in from, you know, like swinging London 1960s and coming into the 1990s and realizing mm-hmm. that all of the stuff that is about he's about <laughs> is completely not allowed anymore. Yeah. And there's a, you know, I, I remember this. There's this whole scene where he's sitting there trying to now catch up on history and realizing all these people he like loved or cared about or whatever, dead. Like, yep. there is something to the original Austin Powers about that. He is a man out of time. And he is this kind of, like, caricature in some respects, but he, it is this kind of, like, how do you interact now with a 90s culture that looks at him like, what the heck is wrong with this? This person, like, he's so weird. Um, but I agree with you. This one seemed to be ramp up all of the catchphrases, ramp up just all of the kind of like, what can we imagine a 13-year-old boy quoting 10,000 times yeah, at nauseum? Exactly. And, and so, so, but what I liked about this movie was the swinging 60s stuff of it. And I think that's because Jay Roach is a smart filmmaker. After this, he moved into doing a lot of those HBO 
political comedy movies, right? Like he does Recount and the John McCain movie and and all that. Yeah, he did Game Change. He did The Brink, I think, also. I, I think that so, time. yeah. But or he like produced it, I think. He's a, he's a smart filmmaker, and he does a really great job in those 60s uh, scenes of like capturing the British New Wave style of the movie. He embraces a lot of that, and that's what I found kind of entertaining. Um, again, probably jokes that most people were not getting at the time because, you know, unlike me watching this now, I'm like, oh, there's a reference to A Hard Day's Night. Oh, there's a reference to Darling and John Schlesinger and some of those people in there. But that's what I enjoyed. And I think the chemistry of Mike Myers uh, and him getting to play goofy Austin Powers and like lost his mojo Austin Powers along with Heather Graham was funny to me. I liked the two of them together. Absolutely. And Jay Roach, by the way, I mean, is about to kind of like start another massive franchise. The next year he directs Meet the Parents. So yeah. he's he's involved in the Austin Powers movies, which made a heck of a lot of money. He mm-hmm. then does Meet the Parents and that starts a whole bunch of, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. And we will talk about Meet the Parents you know, at some point, obviously, on this podcast. I mean, that yeah. was a massive hit. Which is going to so kickstart... Absolutely. Which is going to kickstart Ben Stiller into, like, superstardom in the way that I think Austin Powers kind of, you know, jump-started Mike Myers into A-list star. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of loving nods and winks to other spy comedies some of which are not good like in the sense of if you see there's a sign for casino royale uh let let's make this very clear if you're listening to this podcast we are not talking about the 2005 daniel craig which is very good i'd recommend you see that there's a 1960s comedy of casino royale that i beg all of you don't mm-hmm. watch just don't do it no. you'll, you'll be happier you'll be happier unless you have a burning desire to see a convoluted mess of a movie. Don't, don't, don't watch the 1960s Casino Royale. But this movie does, I think, play off of it. I think it plays off that. It plays off of the uh, Flint movies, the In Like Flint, Our Man Flint kind of. And directly references those. He watches those movies at some point in here. But yeah. Yes, he does. He does actually have on In Like Flint. Um, So, so Trip, you know, obviously you are, uh, this movie did not really connect with you. But is no. there a supporting turn in this movie that you found worked for you? Um, yeah, I want to call out, and I I said the Dr. Evil stuff doesn't work for me. And I think we'll talk about uh, in a little bit of a later segment part of why that didn't work for me. But uh, Rob Lowe shows up here. Um, again, we are right before West Wing is going to start, right? And Rob Lowe's going to switch careers again. But he pops up in here as a young number two, doing a Robert Wagner imitation that, under my understanding, he has been doing a Robert Wagner imitation for years. He dated Robert Wagner's wife, or I'm sorry, he dated Robert Wagner's daughter for a while and developed this imitation. And when they found out that he did a perfect one, it kind of plugged him in to play a young, young number two. And it's just... The role is purely, can I do an imitation? And it made me laugh. And Rob Lowe uh, in this movie is is who I'm going to shout out here for best supporting turn. Rob Lowe is a treasure. And 
also, by the way, you want to talk about you know Mike Myers movies where people are doing Lauren Michaels impressions. Yeah, uh, Rob Lowe is the villain in Wayne's World and is so good, and he is and he's doing also a Lauren Michaels impersonation. So clearly, a voice in that movie. He absolutely is great in this movie, and Rob Lowe is. I'm always happy to see Rob Lowe. He is a really funny comedic presence, and he doesn't disappoint here. Even though they don't give him as much to do as you'd like him to do. No, it's a one note performance, but you know, it made me chuckle. It's a note that 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 just works though every time. Mm -hmm. Um, My person is somebody I shouted out from an earlier episode uh, when we talked about Idle Hands, uh, and he appears again. I like Seth Green. (laughs) <laughs> and I like Seth Green in this movie. I'm yeah. sorry. He's just this snot-nosed, like, late 90s kid who just loves – he's so obnoxious, but in the best way is pointing out how stupid some of these things are that Dr. Evil is saying and just having a blast being kind of obnoxious. Yeah. Um I think he he's perfect for the role that they need him to for Scotty. Yeah. And just him looking at him with the Alan Parsons project. Oh, oh, Star Wars. Oh, <laughs> oh, you're gonna make a Death Star? Okay, Vader. Like it's it's every kind of obnoxious person watching the movie. What you want to say at these exact moments? Yeah, his reaction makes a lot of these stupid jokes a little more bearable because. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like he was on my side the whole time of how stupid all of these scenes are. And the idea of every time, like, you keep letting him go. You're just putting him in a thing with an inept guard. Why don't you just kill him? Like, Seth Green is the person who's like the audience are going like, why are all these plans? Like, just like in every James Bond movie, so bad. Just shoot them. (laughs) That was my problem with anything with Dr. Evil in this movie is there's no logic to it. Again, part of that is making fun of that, but it also just felt like a whole, what ridiculous stuff can we just bring up? Like every time they cut back, it made no sense. It was just like, let's have some some stupid jokes in here. Let's have a musical number for no reason whatsoever. Vern Troyer is kind of funny as mini-me, but it was like, let's just have him biting people for no reason. Like it seemed like a laundry list of jokes that didn't connect to anything that we'll just keep throwing back there. And so in a movie where logic is not necessary, those scenes take that to an extreme that just was off-putting to me. There, there's a lot of like non-sequitur, just weirder mm-hmm. points to it that understandably so. It, it just is kind of, yeah, I don't know why. And I, I, need, remember I, that I, just, I, need, I need a little bit of sequitur, Ross, a, a, a little <laughs> sequitur. It, the I remember that just the two of us version being everywhere. Oh too. God, yeah. Oh yeah. It was it was everywhere, and it is. It's a random part in this movie. There's no reason why they're selling. By the way, no. seems to be a performance that they have practiced. To the, yeah. Like everyone has to watch this. It doesn't make any sense. It's um because the ridiculous. character of Doctor Evil also doesn't make any sense. I feel like. Like, it's a voice that he had, and they just use that character for whatever they think is going to be funny. There are certain stock, I'll say, voices that Mike Myers likes to do, and I'm sure we will talk about one of them in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Dr. Evil kind of elements to this are ridiculous. I will say the other part of the Dr. Evil thing, which we could have talked about, and I thought about putting it as a best supporting turn, Tim Robbins appears as the president, and every. <laughs> 
thing of his thing is just kind of silly in the best. Like, he kind of is exactly the silliness of the movie that I, I also really like. I, I like Tim Robbins kind of like, you know, silly version of the president. It's, um yeah, the Dr. Evil portions of it. I think are better in the first one. I think he he it makes more sense because logically. what I remember from seeing that movie twenty six years ago or twenty five years ago, it's a lot less in the first movie. Like it's it is not given equal screen time like it is now. Well, it also makes more sense when you have a character who is again like Austin Powers out of time, mm-hmm. and so the idea was always in the first one. Like he's, I remember there's a whole thing about the amount of money he wants. Right, I want yeah. one million dollars, and they're like one million dollars in nineteen ninety nine. Well, congratulations, yes. you're not getting much. And then <laughs> they try to like, redo that joke in this movie, and it makes no sense. Yeah, it's like the opposite. So, yeah. Doctor Evil worked with both him and Austin Powers when it was. They're both out of time. They both don't understand how this world works now, and are like trying to catch up. Can I tell you what is funny in this movie, though, Ross? Yes, because there is one scene that I think is almost perfect from beginning to end and that is the appearance of will ferrell as uh some sort of hitman it is right out of a james bond movie it is where the movie is like we are just going to restage a james bond sequence but we are going to make it really funny we are going to throw again a non sequitur joke in there that um will ferrell will crumble if he's asked the same question three times it's his weakness and so once they figure it out it's very funny it does not drag on it goes on just long enough and then he randomly falls off the cliff um and again we get a little bit of a callback at the very end of the movie right uh but um it's will ferrell we are just about i know in a couple years we're going to start getting will ferrell as leading man to be honest i don't think i've ever seen a movie with will ferrell as the leading man in it those are all things i've avoided um but uh, in 1989, we're going to start seeing him pop up in some small roles here, and he's really funny in a cameo role, I think. And so this is just enough Will Ferrell for me. So it's Mustafa is his character's name, and it is actually a callback even to the first Austin Powers because he plays a similar character who gets oh. incinerated, his chair goes down, and the whole thing with, I'm down here, I'm still alive, you know, and I'm, yes. I'm actually, you know, very Monty Python-esque, you know, I'm mm-hmm. still alive. I'm still... So yes. they do that kind of at the end of that scene. But I agree with you. I think that scene is very funny and exasperating in the best ways. It, it reminded me a lot of, like, the Naked Gun movies that I loved as a kid, where they understood that they just had to kind of take a real clip from a cop movie and just elongate it enough and make it ridiculous enough. And I wish more of the movie had done that because it there was restraint in that scene that you don't get in other places in this movie. I wanted to highlight a scene that just made me giggle just because of how ridiculous it was, which is the photo shoot that he does with Rebecca Romaine and Kristen Johnson's character, Rebecca Romaine playing herself. Mm-hmm. Kristen Johnson playing a character known as Ivana Humpelot. Again, this movie is not subtle. Its no, subtlety but, is not but, Austin Powers's. But Bond movies are not subtle. No, they're not. Is this a year after Denise Richards plays Christmas Jones in one of those Bond movies? And it, it it's, might uh, be. It, it's I thought Christmas this year. only came once a year. Like it. So 
I, I the Ivana hump a lot. I wrote that down. I thought that was a funny little joke because I mean, but the whole the 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 photo shoot, which is very much kind of like a '60s. Again, it makes you think of like blowout mm-hmm. or blow up. Sorry, not blowout, blow up. But the photo shoot's so preposterous, right? Be like an animal, and they're all like doing these really ridiculous <laughs> like things. That to me was like, and it's a short scene. It doesn't go very long, and no. it was just like it made me laugh. I will say the other scene I thought of. I did find the whole Jerry Springer show scene to work. And it's also a, that is a scene that does not age well, arguably, because I don't know how many people currently understand the Jerry Springer phenomenon that was at that time, but it is a perfect, just kind of so ridiculous. And Jerry Springer, by the way, game in that scene and game yeah. for his cameo including a fight he has with Dr. You, Evil. You get like, a lot of cameos in this movie of people absolutely. who are who are game to to be themselves. Absolutely. And so uh, I did think about that but yeah, the photo shoot to me it's a shorter scene and it just made me laugh uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um trip I, I assume your your laundry list of scenes that were unfunny or unfunniest moments are very long, but what what is uh, something that you want to highlight? There's a lot of unfunny moments to me in this movie, but I understand why other people find them funny. Look, I don't find the Dr. Evil stuff funny much at all. It doesn't work for me. I understand why you all like those scenes. I understand why those jokes are funny to people. And so I never want to use this as a complain about things that other people find funny that just I don't. Because we're talking about comedies here, and comedy is much more subjective than it is objective, right? It all comes down to what do we find funny. But we have to talk about the character of Fat Bastard, because I knew all of the jokes ahead of time. I knew who the character was. But I'm sorry, this character is offensive all around in all of the stereotypes that they play. He is only there for them to make comments about how disgusting he is because he is overweight. The movie is mean to him. It's a one-note joke that doesn't work, and I found nothing about that character in any way funny or acceptable in 1999 or in 2023. Yeah, as a 10-year-old seeing this movie, I found it funny. I I can't lie, and it's Mm -hmm. because a lot of it is also— And I probably would have if I had seen this when I was 10. I might have found it funny when I was 16 or 17 seeing this movie if I had seen it when it came out. There's a lot of poop jokes and a lot of fart jokes, and it's a it's a character. And again, it's quotable as you talked about the the amount of get in my belly and the baby back ribs thing was everywhere, right? Yeah. Watching it this time, it definitely was something where you're like, oh, this doesn't fully work. And it no. also is as we talked about Mike Myers' stock voices that he likes to use. He likes using a Scottish brogue in a lot of mm-hmm. things, right? He has a very funny parts of So I Married an Axe Murderer, where his character's parents are, you know, his father's Scottish. Very funny. His next movie will be 2001 Shrek, in which Shrek has a Scottish brogue. He likes using that voice. For whatever reason, that is a Mike Myers, you know, kind of thing that he likes to use. And it clearly seemed like this was an excuse. Let me create a character in in which I could use that, right? And 
the character involves some of the most sophomoric jokes in the movie. It is truly bizarre. The, mm-hmm. I kind of forgot, like, from a 10-year-old and really where that was coming from, that there is a kind of subplot about him eating human babies? Yep. Like, actually? Like, I don't understand where that's coming from. And then a really uncomfortable scene of him and Heather Graham in bed, where we're supposed to laugh at how gross he is when he is, you know, naked. Um, Again, we should call out, uh, this is Oscar-nominated makeup here. Like, I guess the makeup on him is fine, whatever. Um, But it just, everything about that character insulted me and rubbed me the wrong way and the way that they treat him. And what is he spoofing? This is not like a character in James Bond that they are making fun of. Whereas all the other people in, you know, this is a Blofeld reference. This is a from Russia with love, the, you know, the woman character in there is, is spoofing on it's all James Bond. And then we're just going to throw this random fat character in. If you're going to be offensive, give me an odd job spoof. Give me a Jaws spoof or something. And at least I'll understand where you're coming from, but there is nothing funny about this character. Jaws would have made sense with the Moonraker references in this. Yeah, um, exactly. Odd job they had used the movie before, so that's okay. why I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I I mean, look, I agree with you. Again, it's it's it is the part of the movie that has aged the worst for me. It, mm-hmm. Watching it again on this, you know, rewatch, um, it is it is now a character that seems very much not necessary to anything in this movie. There really is no need. It's just not needed. Also, inexplicably doesn't age between 1969 and 1999. Just don't know how that happens. But (laughs) somehow... Don't don't ask any logical questions. Yeah, that's that's on my I could spend the next hour picking apart every little thing about... Um, uh, Because Michael York also did not age from the two either. That's because Michael York is ageless. That man (laughs) is great. There's nothing wrong with Michael Uh, York. They needed Um, much more of him in this movie. Absolutely. Um, I will say, to connect us to last week's episode, uh, last week in Notting Hill, which we both loved, we got to hear the the lovely dulcet tones of Elvis Costello singing a song, uh, She, which is a great song Covering in that movie. Cheryl's Avenue's, yeah, yeah, legendary great, song. Yeah, great song. Um, in this movie, again, inexplicably, don't ask questions, he, he pops up in 1969, and there he is oh. with Burt Bacharach singing uh, I'll, Never Love, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, which, by the way unbelievable song unbelievable performance of that song between the it two is. of them it's really lovely it's, it's a, a it's a broadway song. show tune ross do you know what broadway musical that song is from i i do not trip I do promises not. promises the wonderful musical adaptation of uh of the apartment that oh. um, is a musical that is not i don't think done enough it had a broadway revival 10 15 years ago um i know but uh an underheard musical and really lovely, yeah. lovely song there. So. That song is one I actually still listen to. I, I really yeah. find that version with Burt Bacharach, who, by the way, we sadly lost um, earlier this year. We did. Um, so. And and I think the version with him and Elvis Costello is really good, and it's a sweet song, and the mm-hmm. orchestration really works. Um, yeah, and we get a nice little dance that. scene between Mike Myers and Heather Graham. Again, continuing the trend, 1999 movies, lots of dance scenes. 
lots of random appearances by rock bands or you know rock singers who just show up to sing songs and uh I, yeah i'm for it i'm for Th- this it. one of my favorite ones i have to say i think yeah. you know that's very yeah. good yeah. all right trip so now we've come to the part of the show which are we get we let our audience play the home game here um it is time for you to guess what is the rotten tomato score and the letterbox score average score for this movie so trip what did you this think? had to be a critical punching bag. Like I feel like in 1999, this is kind of a quintessential everything that is wrong with um, sequels type thing. I'm going to guess this is rotten with like a 25%. You are much harsher. You are correct. It was rotten. It is at 53% on Rotten wow. Tomatoes. Really? But but not as much of the punching bag as you would necessarily So, like, think. what were these reviews like, Ross? Like, well, I, I will tell you. I know uh, you Owen, will. That's why I asked you. Yeah, so there we go. Owen Gleiberman for Entertainment Weekly, uh, a magazine that we both obviously read a bunch of at, oh, when yes. we were younger. He gave it a B. And he said, there is, in fact, just enough joy in The Spy Who Shagged Me to make you wish there had been more of it. Myers and his collaborators, co-writer Michael McCullers and director Jay Roach, don't do anything terribly wrong, yet the new movie, I'm afraid, is a mixed bag baby. He gave it a B. Just just saying. Okay. Um, Roger Ebert, he gave it two and a half stars. He said the first Austin Powers movie burst with confidence. Mike Myers knew he was onto something. This time, too many scenes end on a flat note, like those Saturday Night Live sketches that run out of steam before they end. That is exactly right, but that's why it should be less than two and a half stars, Roger. I'm sorry. It, and that's why uh, they have these musical dance interludes suddenly to, to do the yes. transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the good users of Letterboxd, what is the average rating for Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me? So this is one of those questions, right? Like, is nostalgia painting this movie in much more rose-colored glasses for people? Or do they see just how kind of you know rotten it is i i don't know is this somewhere in like i I could see it being anywhere ross it could this is a hard one to decide but i'm gonna go with my heart i'm gonna say this is like a 2.9 you're not that far off okay um it is a 3.2 yeah but it crossed that three point line and it shouldn't have i'm sorry ross (laughs) Um, people's 10 year old selves are speaking to them much more than their uh their their current selves i think listen listen to your heart is what trip is telling you listen, listen to your heart listen to your heart so austin powers the spy shag we already talked massive hit it came out the weekend of june 11th of 1999 mm-hmm. there is really nothing else of interest uh that comes out this weekend it's they, kind were, afraid. Of a, they were afraid of it i'm sure yeah clearly um this is this is definitely a weekend that just seems to be one of those ones where it's like you're looking at the other new releases and it was like just a just a little harmless sex le violone rouge and surf s-i-r-f t-u-m wait 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 ross let's go back have you been paying no attention to me throughout this show that you I a- said on episode one that my favorite movie of 1999 in real time was a movie called The Red Violin or Le Violon Rouge. <laughs> Ross, this movie I loved at the time. 
it, I have not revisited it since. I don't hear people talk about it. But I know I saw that movie in the theater that summer. The Red Violin, uh, a star-studded Canadian movie following this legendary violin through hundreds of years. It is uh, a delightful movie. It would go on to win the Oscar for Best Score this year, Ross. 1999 Trip would say it was a five-star masterpiece. And so that you say nothing of real note. And, you know, I'm pulling out the fisty cuffs here, Bratton. <laughs> I will, I will say and note that opening weekend, it is not even in the top 60 movies to come out. No, I, am sure, I am sure it, it picked up steam as it, as it oh, went wait, along. Oh, wait. Sorry. I'd like to correct that because Box Office Mojo has it by its American title. So the Red Violin came in in 40, 41st. Okay. Weekend, there we go. $87,133. I am sure $10 of which was Trip Burton. $10 uh, that was, was me. Yes. Again, I'm not sure if I saw it. Um, it might not have made it out, out to the suburbs by opening weekend, but I definitely is, saw it that summer. This is where I remember that you say that. And then when mm-hmm. I typed it into our, <laughs> into our Word document, I was like, it, I put it as the French title and I didn't take French in high school. So then there it just kind go. of like it washed not, over it did me. Not. Yes, I know. And so, there, there you go. I can pull out my CD copy of the soundtrack here if you want. And, the idea, and by the way, that we both have soundtracks. We both yes. have the soundtracks to these movies. <laughs> you had the Austin Powers soundtrack and I had the Red Violin soundtrack. There we go. Yes. There we go. That says it all, everybody. There we go. There we go. Uh, also in this this weekend's top five was Notting Hill. Okay. Um, you know, which again, doing doing a couple not weeks old at that point. Number so, yeah. three, the number two movie that weekend though is probably the biggest movie of that summer, obviously, mm-hmm. and that is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I saw that opening weekend for sure, and uh, did not go back to see it again in the theater. Surprisingly. Uh, yeah, we will not be talking about that on this podcast because it is not an intentional comedy. Um, no. <laughs> but good, good to note. Um, yeah, there's, there's really just kind of and never been kissed, still hanging on at tenth. Okay. Um, that weekend. So you know, the couple movies that we've we've talked about. Um, so trip. What is a movie that you would pair with this film? I liked this movie the best when it was in the swinging sixties. Uh, I think Jay Roach does a really good job of echoing the style of those movies, especially that Richard Lester style that came out. Uh, You could think of Hard Day's Night. You can think the movie version of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. He had a very distinct 60s style. Um, And one of those movies, I think the one that's probably being echoed the most in these scenes, uh, is the movie he won the Palme d'Or for in 1965, the knack and how to get it. Uh, kind of the story of this meek school teacher in uh, 60s London who is kind of watching the sexual revolution from the side and decides he wants to get involved. It is a movie that is very dated in many ways these days, I should say. Not all of it plays really PC. But I think if you want to see the sort of stuff that this movie is poking fun of, um, it's an interesting time capsule. It is an entertaining enough movie throughout. Um, I do recommend The Knack or How to Get It uh, as as something to maybe pair with this. I definitely agree with you in terms of the style. I think it's a very good representation of early 60s. Yeah. Uh, that kind of style and, and London especially that I think this movie is trying to encapsulate. I am not the biggest fan of that movie, and I did find a lot of problems 
problematic elements with it. Yeah. But I agree with you in terms of if you want a sense of kind of filmmaking, especially mm-hmm. at that time, it's it's not a bad place to at least kind of start in terms of how it's cut, how they kind of like move, oh, yeah. how the the style is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, it's it is not a masterpiece uh, by any sense. And yeah, but uh, I think it's interesting. What about you, Russ? Where, where did you head for our double feature this week? So I will say I, I picked what movie ahead of time before even rewatching it. And then as I was watching it, went, darn it, this movie's calling it out the one I actually <laughs> I actually was gonna pick. And that is In Like Flint, which mm-hmm. is the sequel to Our Man Flint, which I would say you should watch both of them. Um, which is a spy comedy that was in the sixties that James Coburn was uh the the lead person in flint you know is this american spy that was clearly meant to be at the time kind of like an american comedy version to james bond it was the first james bond spoof i think yeah um and coburn is great it is a movie that i would say takes itself more seriously than this in the sense of it is not as sophomoric of humor as, mm-hmm. you know, Austin Powers very much is. It's still very funny, or it's still funny, It, but it definitely takes itself a little bit more serious than something like that. But it's interesting to watch in real time as James Bond is becoming a cultural phenomenon at this yeah. time, that they made this kind of spoof version of it with James Coburn, who is an actor I really love and think he is a really good person for that role. Lee J. Cobb pops up as his like boss. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's not I doesn't I don't think it may be streaming it, you can rent it, but Yeah, that's uh, one reason the Flint movies have always been on my radar of wanting to see, but I feel like they haven't always been super easily accessible out there. And so um I will add them to the watch list, though, because I should, I should check those out. Absolutely. So, Trip, the suspense is probably killing our audience. Uh, they, you're looking at those gray stars on Letterbox. You're, you're looking to pick a rating. What? What could possibly be your rating for how, Austin Powers: The Spy Who Shagged Me? How low will I go? That is, <laughs> that is the question, right? Um, look. I actually, this movie is not for me. And I've been known at times when I see a movie that I know is just not for me, sometimes I'll just leave the rating blank on Letterboxd, um, you know, just because I don't want to punish a movie for not speaking to me. But I think this movie irked me in enough ways. Um, It's a one and a half star movie to me. I'm sorry, Austin Powers fans. Um, I know it's just not for me. But uh, what about you, Ross? Is nostalgia pushing it higher for you, I'm assuming? So... I will give you what I saw as my letterbox rating was before I rewatched it, which was very much nostalgia that mm-hmm. I put on there. And it was probably when I was transferring over and I probably did it as a rating from when I was 10 years old, kind of watching it. And that was four and a half stars at the time in the 10 rewatching this. It went down by a star. It went to three and a half. So it, I, I don't think it was as full nostalgia, you know, in the hmm. sense of I did it did go down in my estimation. Yeah. Um and I actually made me I think appreciate more the original. Mm-hmm. But I think there's enough stuff in here that made me laugh that still makes me laugh that is silly and ridiculous and you know dumb 
in ways that I enjoy. And at 90 something minutes, which thank God it's 90 something minutes. I don't yeah. know where the, it should be longer comment came from. I think it was Owen Gleiberman. Maybe who said that, no. that thing. I would not no, agree with that range. So yeah, I, three and a half. I have minutes. to say, I think take out fat bastard and my really angry response to that character. I might go up to two or two and a half stars with this. I was enjoying enough other stuff, but it is, I think, the inclusion of that character that is really going to uh, going to take me down from here. So next week, Ross, am I going to stay angry or are you going to actually uh, get to go back to Julia Roberts land and something that makes me a little happier again? Well, I, I'd like to hope that it's, you know, not going to be something that is uh, torturous uh, to you. So, Trip, next week, we are going to try, again, to avoid the explicit tag on an episode. Because next week, we are tackling the animated and Academy Award-nominated South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. It's available to stream on Paramount Plus or to rent on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube. Or you could get it on physical copy from your local library because we love physical media and support our local libraries. Mm -hmm. Trip, number one, did you see this movie in 1999 or kind of have a knowledge of South Park? And if not, also, what do you think this movie's about? Uh, So I did not see this in 99. I did not really hop on the South Park bandwagon. Um, I have seen it, though, because after a while, people kept telling me as a music theater nerd that I had to see it. Um, So I know I've seen it at least once, maybe a couple of times through the years. I know the songs pretty well. Like, I think I could probably sing most of those songs because I think I had the soundtrack even or my college roommate did or something. That said, I don't know if I can tell you what the actual plot of this movie is. Like, I remember there's they're angry at Canada. There's a war because there's the Les Miserables stuff. So I think they go to war with Canada, but I honestly have no idea why. Really, everything outside of the uh, the Mark Shaman songs is a blur to me. So um, I've grown to really appreciate what what Parker and Stone do. Uh, since this, I'm a big Team America fan. I'm a huge Book of Mormon fan. So uh, I'm intrigued to go back and take a look at this and see uh, again what they were up to in 1999. So tune in next week as Trip performs the entire soundtrack <laughs> to South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut for everyone With, without getting the explicit tag somehow yes so, so there is so to be couple, fair trip, trip performs about two percent of the soundtrack <laughs> to south park bigger longer and uncut oh, next boy. week on our episode so tune in and listen for that yeah yeah they'll all tune out so. <laughs> in in the meantime um i I, I don't want to give out my socials this week because I feel like like this was one of my more controversial my one of my more controversial tur, uh, turns on this show. But uh, you can find me on X and Blue Sky and all those fun things at Trip Burton thirteen. Uh, you can also find my Letterboxed. Uh, it's under Trip Burton, and I have been keeping some lists on there of the movies we cover and the movies we recommend. So if you want to see those, you can find me on there. Absolutely. And you can find me at R. Bratton on X, on Letterboxd, uh, on Threads, on Blue Sky, 
and, and I would say this, uh, you know, don't don't come at Trip for this. It's it's a very honest and legitimate uh, viewpoint here on Austin Powers. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, you can find the show all over uh, the social media things everywhere at ATTCPod. You can also email us for that long form hatred uh, at <laughs> a trip through comedy at gmail.com. That's trip with two P's. I'm really hoping somebody just writes a whole manifesto now. <laughs> just do us. Let me tell you what I think of Austin Powers. Um, our theme music is So Alive Instrumental by John Worthy Music. You can find his work wherever you listen to music or on the free music archive. And as always, we will see you farther along down the road. You know what we have learned here today? Perhaps it's that no one can take your mojo. You can look around all you want, but what you're really trying to find is on the inside. Take care of yourself and each other.